Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Here, they lick one military wound for a year, their mourning becoming, what was the term? Gung-ho. The Americans were gung-ho, going to fight far across the ocean. This program features the work of 2017 writer Ellie Ballou. Curator Jordan Amani Keith sat down with her in the studio. One of the aspects of your Jack Straw project, Isotopia, is a mytho-historic novel about the Manhattan Project, right? Right. What drew you to write about that, and what lessons have been revealed to you in the writing of it? I was drawn to write it because I wanted to write another novel about a town, a mythic town that I've written about called Ravington, and I wanted to go back in time around the 40s because I was interested in post-World War II, kind of how that turned into this Americana boom of consumerism and Cold War stuff. And so I was interested, and as I was kind of thinking about how I might get started, I was also realizing that the Hanford Project was not far away, and that Roslyn, which is my home and also the basis for this mythic town, had provided coal to Hanford early on when they were constructing the reactor. So I kind of thought, well, that would be a really interesting connection. And then I found a biography of an actual woman physicist who had worked on the Manhattan Project, including Hanford, and I said, okay, this is it. This is like laid out for me. I need to go with it. And so then I started digging in. Um, the mytho part is because I think about time as being different than the way our culture, dominant culture, considers it as so linear. And as a novelist who writes linear narrative, I kind of am interested in if there's ways to tell stories that are more like a bell ringing instead of a beads on a thread. Hmm. Then once I started the research on this woman's life and the Hanford Project, the analogies to current society relative to suspension of uh, a lot of civil liberties, um, the, the desire to become more violent as a society, as a culture, the assurance of the United States being right, all those things were absolutely part of the Manhattan Project and the way that people were excited about that progress with a capital P was kind of unbelievable to me how, it, how similar it is to things happening now. So in creating your main character is Leona Wilds, is this the person that's modeled after the, the biography of the person? And you said in your intro that she comes to a place where she questions science itself which I thought was intriguing. Why is that? Why did that come up? The first part of her experiences in the novel Isotopia are based on the real life of this scientist. The latter part of the story is not based on events that occurred in her life. And so she, 
as happens to many women, uh, is kicked out of the project at the point that things start to go back to normal. They don't need her. She's no longer married to a scientist in the project. And I think as I worked on this novel, I realized, like, oh, this is like the first, this is kind of the modern woman emerging. It's like there wasn't birth control. There wasn't uh, women. She was the only woman that was allowed to continue on the project at that level. Everyone else, every other woman, and there were other women physicists, if they ended up getting married, they were off the project. Married women weren't allowed. And so Leona's experience of how she manages to stay in the project as a young woman I think is in keeping with many women's experiences of all-male work sites. And then her experience when post-World War is typical of a lot of women in a lot of fields. As soon as men started coming back from the war, they were out. Mm. Um, Please share an excerpt of what you've been writing. Okay. Would you tell us a little bit about this piece? Yeah. This is the other part of the project, totally different, partly to help me get kick-started after finishing this novel, um, which is uh, a series of prose pieces that kind of pivot off an expression or a term or situation. So this one is called Family. Let the story, a story told before, hear it told again. Before there was child, there was father, and he wanted. In particular, he desired mother, her blush and her flighty tremble. He wanted her to come to him, to come to him. Mother wanted flight, wanted strength from father, wanted time and some unknown place, wanted all these before she wanted child. After child, father, when he is home, frowns, or he pauses, or he sadly shakes his head. He is often gone to a weighty place. And when he leaves, there is a world filled with mother and filled with child, and it is busy, and it is loud, and it is colorful, and for child it is good. One night at the table, mother invites father to this world. She suggests the next day she could pack a lunch. Father could roll the ball to child. They could stop and have ice cream on the way home. You know the story now. Child hears mother's words like a robin chirp, calling, calling, chirp, singing. Child watches father, sees his scrapey whiskers, smells his dark smells, hears the clock tick and the suck of spoon from potato. Father serves mother. Father serves child. Mother's voice fades. Father lifts his fork, pauses, says rain. Perhaps by afternoon. Perhaps all day. It will rain, and so a picnic makes no sense, and he has other plans in the morning. In the afternoon, he will take child, if mother wishes, for a short walk. Child crying, Child spits his food. Child kicks, kicks at father, at the cold world, at the rain that might never come. Thank you. I could see the whole thing painted. I think of that as a a prose poem. It seems to me that you write across genres quite a bit. Is that true? Uh, I guess so. I write, I think, fairly lyrical prose. So in that respect, yes, but I am an avidly a non-poet, because I am very enamored of the random line breaks of a piece of prose, as opposed to the structured line breaks and and that arena of poetry. Whoa. (laughs) I want to know more. 
What fascinates you about line breaks? That well, I I've come to really enjoy the fact that uh, prose, especially novels, have a kind of a manufactured aspect to them. Of uh, as an object, they are they can be printed on crummy paperback paper. It doesn't matter where the page breaks, other than like for a chapter, you control that. But it. The rest of it is just about the word by word by word. And so I, I, I like trying to write to that standard where the only control I have is word by word by word. So our country is experiencing um, heightened unrest, I would say. How do you hope your work will speak to people during these times? Well, in working on Isotopia, my sense of that changed some because seeing that story and feeling that story and living that story and then writing that story made me realize it was a story that I wanted people to know so they could feel what went on then and look at what's going on now in a different way. And so to me, the way that stories work, which is what I'm obsessed with, is that they they can give you kind of a double vision. You can see the thing that went on in the story, and it makes you see what's going on with you and around you differently. And with luck, there's some resonation. So I'm very interested in in uh, catching that. And because my sense of what went on with the Manhattan Project is... Uh, it was crazy. It was more, there's analogies like it would be the equivalent of building a pyramid in three years in terms of the modern technology, the amount of resources that went into it, the whole focus to just do this thing and blow every kind of law or practice or anything out of the way to do this thing. And so it's interesting to me to say as a story, not as a lecture, not as a even an example, but as a personal feeling, like this is what it was like to be caught up in this and to be doing this. And these were people that were very proud of their work and stretching themselves to do this thing. But what were they doing? And how do you see a lens on today, like the stretching and the... Well, I see now, like, these things that we're being told are for our own good and our security and our nation and and our sense of identity is supposed to be in a with certain people in a certain way and against other people that we don't know and these were the things that were going on um, like on the Manhattan projects there was the physicist community had a huge number of expatriate uh, European scientists and the FBI was following them and threatening them with deportation if they didn't toe the line on the project. These are Nobel Prize-winning scientists, and they had nowhere else to go. I mean, they came, you know, this was the situation. So these kinds of things are just, I never knew any of this. I never heard any of this. I, I didn't, this wasn't my sense of what went on. And so to me, these stories are like, this is what went on. This happened. These are real things that happened. And all I'm doing is saying, what would it be like to be in the midst of it? Now we'll hear a selection from Ellie's live reading. He 
So this opens Hyde Park, Chicago, December 7, 1942. Verdi studied the grainy newspaper photo of the USS New Jersey, just christened and frozen forever as it skidded backward into its watery wake. Steaming toward victory blared the headline of the Chicago Herald. In the picture, halfway down the long launching ramp, one solitary worker stood, staring out at the retreating behemoth, his hat to his side. The news article went on, celebrating the battleship's launch as fitting commemoration of the first anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Verdi flipped through the rest of the paper, but he could find no mention of the bombing of Naples. He returned to the front page photo. Here, they lick one military wound for a year, their mourning becoming, what was the term? Gung-ho. The Americans were gung-ho, going to fight far across the ocean. Verdi pushed his soft-boiled egg aside. You must eat something. He looked up and saw Sophia, pale and tired and small, her lips pursed. He folded the paper so the front page did not show. I'm not hungry, and it is time for work. He bit his caustic tongue, buttoned his coat, and kissed her, especially if I'm to be home in time to light the menorah. Tell the children good morning for me. With that, he stepped out, picking his way down the unplowed street past unlit houses, willing himself to focus upon the work ahead. Unlike that ship worker, no one would catch him staring at his leviathan. Inside Eckert Hall, past the guard, the light was garishly bright, garlands of red and green tinsel draped everywhere. Verdi signed in, took a breath of stuffy air, and climbed to the second floor, where Miss Sawyer gave him a chilly smile, all the time watching to make sure he checked his box. Hawthorne Greenworld, Dupont de Nemoires made earnest flesh, called yet another meeting to top secret order at 7.30. Inexorably, he pried discussion from theoretical physics to industrial build-out, the general's edicts his conversational fulcrum. When specifically called upon, Verdi offered up his pithy postulations. Leona took notes for him. She made lists of still-needed materials, their specifications, and operational variables. She faithfully copied Greenwald's latest organizational diagram, noted his revised schedule, and diligently omitted any reference to arguments about jurisdiction or appropriation. And she took due note of what was not discussed, the university's ever-diminishing authority. When the meeting ended, she grabbed her coat and chased after Verity, half-blinded by the dazzling sun and snow outside Eckert. Marionettes. Verdi did not even break stride when she stumbled. The general writes the script, Greenworld pulls our strings, and we, we dance. His bitterness blindsided Leona. This meeting had been no more acrimonious than many others. Greenwald may call out the steps, but I haven't seen you dancing. Very clever. Verdi picked up his pace. Of course, you run your own puppet show. He met her confusion with a grim smile your admirers, F.A. and now Oliver. Leona choked out a lame retort, the narrow sidewalk forcing her behind Verdi as they entered the black shadow of Stag Stadium. Good morning, Zizigi was waiting. Good morning, Verdi reached for the door. And to you, young lady. Zizigi blocked their passage with a slight bow. Verdi smiled and let go of the handle. 
You, my friend, have been lying in wait. Perhaps. Zizigi also smiled. A brief walk? Verdi shrugged, nodding for Leona to come along. They followed Zizigi back into the sun. At the corner, hands deep in his coat pockets, Zizigi stopped. Professor Totten again bans me from the Met Lab, but this time the general has agreed. Verdi would not meet Zizigi's watchful eyes. Leona rocked on her numb feet, pretending she was invisible. It would only take a few words from you. Zizigi sighed and sighed again. You must speak to the general on my behalf, which is also your own. You ask too much. Verdi hid behind the cloud of his frozen breath. My wife and my children are safe for now, only because of the general. Wide-eyed, Leona watched him pivot and begin the walk back to Stag. Zizigi gave her his saddest smile. Go with him. So the next section I'm reading, um, Leona enters another world of experience when she becomes unhinged by the implications of the atomic bomb she helped create and her husband's sudden death from radiation poisoning. She returns to the Hanford site to take the only work she's been offered. Circumstances delay her ability to report for work and she heads out into the countryside where she is bitten by a snake. Black Rock Canyon, near the Columbia River, September 1945. From the back seat, Beverly had plenty of time to watch the telephone lines dip and rise, pole to pole, as Smyrna's car lugged up the long hill. She wondered if a puff of cloud to the west would bring rain, trying not to think too much about the pain in her hips. Then something caught her eye. What's that? She pointed with a finger that never got straight. There. Her two sisters looked out at a lump on the hillside above them and looked more closely. It was too dark for garbage, <coughs> the wrong shape for a bloated carcass. As big as an eagle, but it wasn't moving. Smyrna backed up to where the ditch went shallow and drove through bitter brush and sage. Beverly had known when she got out of bed, something was off, so she wasn't surprised to see it was a girl. Later, it made sense she'd thought at first the girl might be something dead. Smyrna drove up close, stopped the car and headed over. Beverly was right behind her with a milk bottle full of water. Doris splayed her feet out the front seat and came shuffling behind, muttering this wasn't any of their business. They should get back in the car and keep driving. The surprise was the girl was white. I'm telling you, we need to go away from here right now. Doris kept looking back at the road, fearful someone would see them. How long would you last out here in this sun? Beverly eased herself down onto her knees, poured a little water into the cup of her palm, tilted her hand against the girl's lips. Most of the water trickled away. She don't even know we're here. Smyrna scuffed at the ground, but she was studying the girl. Doris, arms crossed, kept her distance. Maybe she wants to stay here. Beverly and Smyrna both shook their heads. They could all see the girl's swollen hand, thumb black like a blood sausage gone bad, angry streaks running up the inside of her wrist. Smyrna pulled out her knife and made a cut on the girl's wrist, sucked at it, spit, and took a swig from the bottle of water. They hauled the girl back to the car then, Smyrna carrying her under the arms, 
Beverly and Doris each holding one leg. Doris took the front seat, jammed herself against the door, and pouted. In back, the girl's head rocked in Beverly's lap, her legs flopping bent-kneed when the car jounced through the drainage ditch. Once the Packard was back on the road, Smyrna drove smooth as water on slick rock. Beverly kept the girl's swollen hand upright, stroking her chopped raven hair. She could feel fever, pulsing fever in the girl's brow. They crested the ridge and headed down. When they could smell the river, Smyrna gave Beverly one glance in the rearview mirror. Beverly nodded. She and Doris would tend to the girl for now. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>